Hello, and welcome back to Over My Dead Pod. I'm Holly Spear. I'm Kate Carter. And I'm Kylie Colwell. I'm telling the case today, and I have a great case, which I don't think Kylie or Kate has heard of. Mm -mm. Um, And this is a crazy one. Today, our story takes place in Alaska, closer to Russia than to the U.S., and just south of the Arctic Circle. Here lives 19-year-old Sonia Evanoff. She lives in a small village called Uniclete. In Uniclete, you either know or are related to everyone. Sonia was an indigenous woman and was very proud of her heritage, but she had dreams of moving to Nome, Alaska, which is about 150 miles away from her. Nome was once a lucrative gold mining community. Although it had a population of less than 4,000 people, Nome was a big city compared to the small village where Sonia grew up. When Sonia graduated from high school in 2002, Sonia got a job as a hospital receptionist in Nome, and this gave her the excuse to move. But Sonia did not go alone. Tamari, Sonia's best friend, moved with her. Sonia and Tamari did everything together. The two girls didn't have a car, but in such a small area, the girls felt pretty safe walking everywhere they went. Plus, they were always together. Sunday, August 10th, 2003, Sonia and Tamari were hanging out and spending time with friends in their new town. Sonia had a beer and was playing some games. Now, this is also Alaska, so the sun is actually setting about midnight here, which is just insane to me. So the night's still pretty young, but Tamari has to work the next morning. And she tells Sonia that she's going to go in the night and go crash. But she'd see her back at the house, which the two girls shared. Sonia was still having a good time. She didn't have to work the next day like Tamari, and she was not ready to end the night yet. Tamari says goodbye and walks down the road towards the home of her other friend who she's going to stay with. And Sonia walks the opposite direction towards the house the two shared. I don't think Sonia was going home, but she's just walking in the direction of her home. So, fast forward to the next morning. Tamari comes home from her friends at 5 a.m. to get ready for work. Sonia's not home from her night out yet, but this is not super alarming to Tamari. She shrugs it off and heads to work. The girls didn't have cell phones at this time, but when Tamari got to work, she would call Sonia from her work phone and see what was going on. Sonia likely just stayed out late and decided to stay with friends instead of walking all the way home in the cold. However, no one seemed to have heard from Sonia or know where she could be. By mid-afternoon, Tamari's tensions are rising a little. Sonia didn't have to be at work until Tuesday morning, so there was still a chance that Sonia could show up and get ready for work and everything would be okay. It's not completely unlike Sonia to stay out all night and then sleep over with friends. However, when Sonia misses work on Tuesday, Tamari goes to the Nome Police Department in tears to tell them about her missing friend. And the Nome Police Department does not take her seriously at all. Now, we see this a lot with missing people. Police will dismiss the family and friends of a loved one claiming that they'll show up, they're just out partying, or they've decided to run away. However, Sonia's case is worse than usual, and we're going to see this as a reoccurring theme, not just in Sonia's case, but in the many, many cases of Native and Indigenous women turning up missing, murdered, or harmed. Police just not taking it seriously. So if you've never heard of this huge problem with the violence against Indigenous women, um, look it up. It's a huge, huge problem in many, many parts of the U.S. These cases are not as heard of and usually given little to no attention by law enforcement. So Tamari goes to the police station the police stated that Sonia was just out partying and drinking. Tom and Christy, Sonia's mom and dad, catch wind that Sonia missed work. They know that this is completely out of character for their daughter. Sonia doesn't just no call, no show to work. So the Ivanovs jump in their car and start their own investigation. They drive around Nome looking for Sonia and calling anyone that she might have been with. The parents went to the police department 
and were just dismissed, just like Tamara. But finally, the next day, the police department sent an officer to the Ivanovs' home to make a report about Sonia. The search for Sonia Eisenhoff finally starts. Search and rescue teams surround the area. The next Wednesday, the body of Sonia Ivanov was discovered. The road Sonia was found down was hardly ever used and led to an old, rundown gold mine. But when the searcher noticed fresh tire tracks down the middle of a muddy road, he followed them. These muddy tracks led to the naked body of Sonia Ivanov on the side of the road. Now, Nome Police Department make a smart move here and decide that they were not equipped to take on this case alone. The Nome Police Department was very small and hardly had any experience in crimes like this. The officers covered the crime scene without touching anything and guarded it until the Alaska Bureau of Investigations could make their way to start a full-scale investigation. While this was the right decision, it was not an easy one. It's literally Alaska, so you can't just go down the road. The station of the Bureau is 500 miles away in Anchorage, Alaska, with no roads connecting the cities. Eric Burroughs, the case officer from the Alaska Bureau of Investigations, told reporters that in the investigation world, you hear about the first 24 or 48 hours and how important they are to the case. And they are. But in Alaska, the first 24 or 48 hours is usually just spent getting to the crime scene. When the investigators finally arrive in Nome, they start collecting evidence. The body of Sonia was naked, minus one of her socks. The killer had taken the clothes with him. She had a bullet wound to the back of the head. There was no DNA evidence at the scene or on the body. But the most promising piece of evidence was a pool of blood beside the body that had a tire track running through it. The rainy nights and the blood preserved the near-perfect tire track on the ground. Of course, the police jump all over this and discover that the tracks are even more distinctive because one of the treads of the tire tracks was different than the others. So essentially, the vehicle that ran over the blood on this desolate road had three matching tires and one different tire. The police are now searching for a vehicle with one mismatched wheel. Next, police discover a light blue paint scraping on a branch, likely from the vehicle that got too close and scratched its side, leaving a paint chip. Because of the height of the paint chip, officers concluded that the vehicle was likely a truck or an SUV. So now we're hunting for a light blue truck or SUV with one wheel that doesn't match the others. So this is helpful in the initial search. Police start asking friends and family who could ever think of anyone who would want to hurt Sonia, but Sonia had zero enemies. The police asked friends and family to write down anyone that Sonia had regular contact with. One of these reoccurring people is Daniel Ngsuk, or aka Kunik. Now, Kunik was a man who had made it known in some point in time that he was interested in Sonia. However, Sonia didn't share these feelings. Sonia wanted to remain friends with Kunik. Sonia liked Kunik on a friendship level, but nothing more, so the two remained friends. Sonia's friends that knew Kunik described him as having a hard outer shell but a soft teddy bear inside. Police, however, dig deeper into Kunik, and he was not so great. Ready for the red flags? I'm ready to pull them out. Start waving. Kunik was known to have a temper. Kunik had a girlfriend and a child at the time of this murder, and they were not on good terms by all accounts. However, even more damning, Kunik drove a truck, and guess what color? Blue. Light blue. And just like the crime scene evidence, Kunik's truck had one tire that did not match. Red flags all over the place. And not just mismatched tire, but the mismatched tire on the same side of the truck, the same, you know, front, back tire, it matched. So obviously Kunik is suspect number one right off the bat. His truck is searched and he consents. I think he's complying. 
Koenig's truck is searched, and the first thing that stops the officers right in their tracks is a couple of splatters of blood on the inside of the cab of the truck. The Red police flags. pour a substance that turns green when coming into contact with blood on the tires of Koenig's truck, and the tires light up. There's blood all over Koenig's tires. In the back of his truck, police pull out a blue tarp. The tarp is also covered in dried blood. There are three rifles in the truck. One of them is also splattered with blood. Finally, if that's not enough, police pull out shoes, and one of the shoes is covered in a noticeable amount, very noticeable amount of blood. So this is not looking good for a Koenig. He did he not just, clean up at he all. He just kept it. He just kept he just, everything. Yeah. What Are we going to hear that he hunts deer, you know, and, and that's yes. blood of animals? And I would just, Did yeah. I call it? <laughs> yeah, he called it. Very surprisingly, Koenig is being very cooperative with police, and he's not lawyered up. The police confront Koenig with the evidence. The investigators start asking Koenig the last time he saw Sonia. Koenig tells the police that he did see her from a distance that Friday before the weekend that Sonia disappeared, but that he didn't so much as speak to her. Koenig said there was no way that it could have been him because he was out of town that day. When the police are sitting there asking Koenig questions, one of the officers sees a fresh scratch mark going down Koenig's arm. In a rush to preserve evidence on Koenig's body, the police escort him to the hospital and have him examined. Koenig has a couple of scratch marks down his back and his neck. The hospital takes DNA evidence from Koenig and the officers tell Koenig if this evidence matches the evidence they found at the scene, it's obviously not going to be good for him. I think they're just hoping to get something out of him knowing there's no DNA to compare it to. The news is also broken to Koenig that they did already know his truck was similar to the evidence of the vehicle found at the scene. Police ask Koenig, already knowing the answer to his question, if there's any reason that they would find blood in his truck. Koenig replies, no. But then when probed and confronted a bit more, Koenig offers an explanation. So, Kate, here we go. Here's the classic explanation. Koenig said that the blood was probably from a rabbit, and he had hit a rabbit on the road earlier and had to kill it because it didn't die immediately, and that if they found any blood, that would be where it came from. A rabbit. Well, it could also be from a porcupine. He also shot one of those while hunting recently, so all of this could be explained away. Those don't have much blood. No. Mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-mm. He would have been better off saying some a bigger animal, you know, like right? that. A squirrel. I hit a squirrel earlier and its blood just went everywhere. Yeah. I've got plot twists for you guys, so. I'm excited. It goes without saying that the Alaska Bureau of Investigations is calling major BS on this story. The police had their man, but would need to wait to make an arrest until the blood came back as a match for Sonia. Meanwhile, Sonia's family is rightfully upset about the lack of movement in their daughter's case and are haunted by the thought that Sonia's killer is living freely among the residents of this tiny town. Sonia's dad, Tom, understood far too well about the rate of missing Native women and the likelihood of the cases being solved. And Tom is relentless. This man goes to the police department every day at 8 a.m. in the morning and every day walks into the police department demanding answers to his daughter's case. Tom prints out a picture of his daughter and took it to the police station and stuck it to the wall as a daily reminder to the officers that his daughter's killer was walking around. Finally, the blood results taken from Koenig's car come back from the labs and police are finally ready to make their arrest and put Sonia's killer behind bars. But the test comes back and it is animal blood, all of it, on everything, on his tires, on his shoes, in his car, on the gun. And Koenig is able to take the officers back to where he hit the animal on the road and it's still there. So I guess this is Alaska, so maybe normal, I don't know. The paint samples from his truck come back and they are not a match either. So this is all just a huge coincidence, which is just crazy to me. They're ready to arrest this man. 
everything was going against him. Oh, right? 100%. Now the police have zero leads and zero suspects. One of the officers on the case was a new and eager officer named Brian. We love Brian. Brian says that he was humbled and honored to take this case and he was going to give it all he could. And he did. However, Brian quickly learned that the police department did not do a good job of sharing information with each other. And Brian was often left in the dark of who had been interviewed, new leads, etc. So instead of going with the flow, Brian literally said, "Of this, I'm going to start a whole new investigation from square one. And thank God he did because it was the saving grace in this case. Brian notices a tip, a tip that was from an eyewitness that never got followed up on, who claims that they saw Sonia walking home Sunday night. The witness was a woman who was outside on the porch smoking a cigarette when Sonia walked by. The two knew each other and they waved. Sonia kept walking down the road. However, Sonia was not alone. Close behind Sonia was a car stalking her. The best part is this is not just any car. This is a very distinctive car. It was a gnome police squad car. Wait. So what? So the tip conveniently didn't get followed up on. So sets the scene for the story. The car comes to a stop at Sonia and the eyewitness hears Sonia say, what's going on? Then Sonia gets into the police car and it drives away. So obviously when Brian, the only actually honest officer in Nome, hears this eyewitness report, he is faced with, do I report it or do I not report it? Obviously he does. And a new investigation starts with a completely sinister outlook on the city. The first question is obviously whose car is this? Who had access to this car? And who was on patrol the night the eyewitness saw Sonia being picked up? Turns out that Nome Police Department only has three police vehicles. And this is such a small department that officers don't get their own car and they don't get to drive it off duty. The department had a practice where the vehicles that the officers would drive, they would switch them on and off their shifts. So when you got done with a shift, you would take your car and pick up the other officer and they drop you off at home. So people are sharing these cars. The officers on duty the night Sonia went missing were Matt Owens and Stan Vesqua. And each was driving their own car. Ironically, both officers were some of the ones who had dismissed the parents of Sonia, Tom, and Christy, and were very dismissive of the appearance from day one. The investigators, because obviously it's the Bureau at this point, can't really have the police department investigating when they're in the murder. Um, the investigators learned that the known police department didn't keep their cars really on lockdown, so they would just be left in front of the police department and many times not even locked. So could be anybody at this point. Obviously, we have the Bureau in Anchorage that come back to take the case. And obviously, both of the officers were scheduled to make the long trek into Anchorage to take a polygraph. However, before this could happen, one of the police cars came up missing all of a sudden. So police were on a mass search for the stolen cruiser. They were searching all night until Officer Owens found the car at 2 a.m. across the street from where Sonia was found. Is this Officer Matt Owens? Matt Owens finds the car. Matt and Stan were the ones that were supposed to have the car that night, right? Hmm. Yeah, in separate cars. So we don't know which car it was. We don't have like a license plate. At this point, we either know someone stole their patrol car, which is highly unlikely because they were literally in it, or it's Matt or Stan. Not looking good, boys. Not looking good. Yeah. Owens radios the officers. Everyone drops what they're doing to meet Owens at the side of the car. On their way, the officers get an even more serious call from Owens. Owens radios again and reports shots fired. Owens was shot at three times, but was able to jump out of the way and run into the woods. Police arrive at the scene, and the assailant escapes. Police start looking around the scene, and they find an envelope sitting in the driver's seat of the stolen police car. The envelope reads, Pigs, I hate cops. I hate every one of you. 
Is this like a Jesse Smollett? Yes. It's the stupidest. I'm going to go ahead and say a cop wrote that letter. Mm -hmm. Say say the letter again. Pigs. I hate cops. I hate every one of you. Sonia was just a person in the wrong place at the wrong time. I did not know her. And as you can see, it was easy for me to take your pig car keys. It was not her fault. She thought I was a pig and shit just happened. She was just a person. And I just wanted to see if I could that night. Every one of you should be careful. I watch every move you make. Leave me alone and I will leave you alone. I'll shoot you in the head if you get close. As proof of Sonia knowing this person, in the envelope is one of Sonia's ID cards. A non-cop wouldn't write that type of letter. Like, that's just... Yeah. Leave me alone. You I'll pigs. Leave you alone. And, yeah. and the cops are like, okay, bet. Okay, deal. Bet. <laughs> bet. Yeah. Oh, no, like, he, ca- he called us a pig. No. Yeah. It's a deal. We'll leave you alone. Like, okay, yeah, yeah. whatever. Officer Owens is so shaken up by barely making it out alive from the shoot-off that he does not come in for his polygraph and instead goes to see a therapist. However, the other officer scheduled to take his polygraph and have his interview, Stan Vesqua, does go in for his interview and recounts his night. Stan tells the officer that he responds to reports all night and by the time of Sonia's disappearance, he was back at the station doing paperwork. The only real thing that the officers have to back this up right now is the dispatch log from that night. Stan is insistent that he did not see Sonia and he did not give her a ride at any point. Five days later, Owens does come in for his interview. Owens tells the investigators about all the reports he responded to that night. How it was a normal night on the job and at 7 a.m. he picked up the sheriff who was going to be switching into his car for his shift. Owens tells the investigators that Sonia had never been in his patrol car. Both of the officers' stories align, but they still have a polygraph to take. So we know polygraphs are not always reliable, and that's why they can't be used in court. But anyway, Stan and Owens willingly take a polygraph. Owens fails. Owens had worked the night shift for quite some time, and he would pick up women in his patrol car. The department had confronted Owens about not doing this anymore, and he was just saying that they were just like ride-alongs, like he was just doing ride-alongs. Okay. They yeah. knew that he picked up women in his patrol car. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, Matt. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So Matt's looking suspicious. So the department had confronted Owens about not doing this anymore. But as far as illegal goes, the women were always seen in the front seat of the car. They weren't arrested and it didn't look like from the outside that they were being forced. Mm, Although I could disagree, but whatever. It was also known that Owens and Sonia at least knew of each other because Owens had run Sonia's name through their database and they could track and see who he looked up. So he had looked Sonia up before. Police also find out the morning Sonia was killed, Owen makes a phone call to his ex-wife or ex-girlfriend, I'm not sure which, and asks if she could take their child that day because Owens had to go into work early that day because there was a missing girl. However, at that time, no one even knew Sonia was missing. Sonia was not even reported missing yet. Also, investigators found a gun in evidence at the known PD that matched the gun that was used to kill Sonia. Now, this wasn't a complete mat. Apparently, what was used to kill Sonia was like a 22 caliber. And apparently this, I don't know that much about guns, but I know that like it was a bullet that could have been put into multiple guns. Yeah, yeah. So bullets are tailored to certain guns or they can be used on different ones. So if you say, hey, we've got the shell casing of a 22 caliber, then it's specific. But if it's a shell casing to one that can match multiple guns, then you can't say it's automatically. Yeah. yeah. So this was like, this was a gun that could have fired that bullet. They couldn't say for certain because I think that... Been a different gun. It could have been. Yeah, it could have been a different gun. But 
which kind of confuses me because I thought you could do that whole like if you had a casing, see the ballistics. Yeah, like the rivets. Anyways, so he makes this report to his ex-wife and girl's not even missing it. We call that big red flags. Big red flags. So did the officer steal the gun from the evidence room and use it to kill Sonia and then replace it? It was certainly possible, but police still don't have much concrete evidence to leak Owens to Sonia's body at the time. Owens' service weapon did not match the gun and police didn't have DNA to link Owens to the crime scene. Owens was arrested, though, and fired from known PD. The arrest of Owens obviously goes public in this small town. Now more and more women are coming forward to report that Owens had also forced them into his car, whether by arresting the girls or asking if they needed a ride and trapping them. Many of the girls had already tried to file a police report to known PD against Owens, but conveniently nothing ever came from it. Investigators got a tip that Owen had been seen burning gloves that were completely new in a fire pit that he frequented. Investigators empty this fire pit and go through the ash piece by piece. What was left was metal. The little metal like circle looking things that you would thread your shoelaces through. You know what I'm talking about? They're on the shoe and you like put your Mm -hmm. shoelaces Mm -hmm. through them. I don't know Mm -hmm. what they're called, but there was those little metal things and they said sketchers around them. There was also buttons from a jeans that said tilt. That's the brand and a key. The evidence was taken to Sonia's family in hopes that they would recognize any of the small bits that belonged to their daughter. And they did. The family knew that Sonia wore the same brand of jeans called Tilt and wore Skechers. However, one thing that was not Sonia's was the key that was found. After two weeks in jail, Owen makes bail and is released. January 18, 2005, the case of the state of Alaska versus Owens begins. It's pretty obvious to me what happened here, but let's talk about what we have against Owens. It isn't the rock-solid, ideal case investigators would like to have. So we have an eyewitness testimony that a woman and her friend were outside smoking and saw Sonia talking to a man in a police car and Sonia got in. We have a burn pit that someone saw Owens toss gloves into. Later in that burn pit, small pieces of metal were found with brands that matched the brands that Sonia wore. We have a gun in the evidence room of the known PD that Owens could have had access to, but it cannot be determined for sure. We have a failed polygraph which we know is inadmissible either way. Officer Owens had also run Sonia's name through the department's database before. But if you think about it, there's no real uncircumstantial evidence and there's no DNA at the crime scene or physical evidence that shows Owen at the crime scene. So if you think about it, we really just have, oh, we saw him throw gloves into the burn pit and then they searched the burn pit and there's all these things, but we didn't see him throw those things into the burn pit. We have no DNA at the scene. We have basically nothing other than just like hearsay. On the defense side, the defense brings forward an eyewitness who claims that he saw Sonia in a vehicle days after the prosecution claimed she was killed. If this was true, it would throw off the prosecution's timeline of events. However, the witness says that he cannot be 100% sure if it was Sonia. The defense also claims that Owens would not have access to the gun and evidence. The defense also claims that Owens' wife has her days mixed up on the day that Owens said that he had to go into work early because of the missing girl. The defense takes the approach that Owens is innocent, and the prosecution has a way better and significant case against other officers, specifically another officer named Redburn. The defense claims that Owens was actually having an affair with Redburn's daughter, and there was a recent incident where Redburn had punched a suspect in the face and Owens had reported it. Reportedly, Redburn carried a big grudge against Owens, and therefore Redburn was trying to frame him for the murder. Redburn had been the officer to collaborate with the Alaskan investigators and had been the one that suggested the gun in the evidence room of the known PD could have been used. But the defense also insinuates Kunick again, the young man from the beginning who was ruled out and that turned out nothing could be related to him. It was just a huge misunderstanding. 
So the defense's case is basically like, look at all these other people that it could be. Why blame Officer Owens? The jury deliberated for 40 hours and the jury reported that they were deadlocked and the judge declared a mistrial. Sonia's family was, of course, devastated. They had not been taken seriously from the beginning and feared Sonia would be added to the list of Native girls whose killer would never be known, especially up against a law enforcement officer in this case. The prosecution asked for a change in venue of the trial. In this case, the prosecution argued that it was impossible to find a jury in this county. The judge agreed and the case was moved to a neighboring area in Alaska. So, still not done with the plot twists. In the literal middle of the second trial, an actual truthful officer in Nome, the same one that originally reported the eyewitness sighting of the police car, turned it in, was shocked to hear that someone had actually seen Sonia's ID in Owen's bedroom. This is the same ID that had been found in the abandoned police car the night of the alleged shootout. The alleged shootout. So now the question is if this is going to be allowed in trial, because we're in the middle of trial right now. So... This new evidence was not discovered before the trial, but it's also hearsay. And not just that, it's third-party hearsay, which goes like this. The person who saw the ID told someone else who told the officer. So I will say I think Owens did it, but the evidence in this case is jacked. Like, everything is hearsay. Like, it's just so crazy. The known police department starts frantically searching for who had seen this ID and found that after Owens' wife or girlfriend, whatever, kicked him out, He moved into a woman's house and paid her rent. In his room, the woman saw the ID of Sonia. Now, this woman is a friend of Owen's. So investigators are a little iffy on if she would ever testify, if she would come to this trial in the middle of trial and testify against her friend. So investigators get a warrant and tape the woman saying that she did see the ID. But when called to the stand, she denies everything. The jury debates, and this time they come back with a verdict. Owen is found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to 101 years. To this day, Owen still denies he killed Sonia. So, this is a case where a Native woman actually got justice, but this is just one good story out of hundreds and hundreds of unsolved cases, hundreds and thousands of assaults against Native and Indigenous women in the U.S. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, The murder rate is 10 times higher than the national average for women living on a reservation and the third leading cause of death for Native women. Additionally, this group are significantly more likely to experience rape in their lifetime compared to other women. In 2016, a study by the National Institute of Justice found that more than four in five American, Indian, and Alaska Native women, 84.3%, have experienced violence in their lifetime, including 56.1% who have experienced sexual violence. Indigenous women and girls are murdered at 10 times higher than other ethnicities. And these are just the statistics that go reported. There's a much bigger problem in the cases that go completely unreported. So this was the murder of Sonia Ivanov. And we are going to attach a link to the National Domestic Violence Hotline and a link specifically to the Native American service page of that website where you can call, text, or chat if you know someone who is experiencing this. They have free and confidential support for Native American or Alaskan Native survivors and families affected by violence. This one was messy. I knew this was going to be messy when where the body was found, and there's just an absurdly large tarp, not one that they use to cover bodies, and they're just holding it down with, like, rocks from nearby. Mm-hmm. You know, they just they don't deal with murders. Mm-hmm. No. That's a crazy story. Yeah. And really sad too. But it's, I mean, like you said, the amount of 
native and indigenous women, especially in Alaska and places like in Canada as well. If it wouldn't have been from that officer that actually was the only honest officer, they would not have even investigated that tip. I think they probably would have ended up just, well, she probably just would have been an unsolved case, but they could have easily also just pinned it on Kunick. The whole department is obviously corrupt, so it would have been an easy out for them. But that one officer was like, I'm actually going to investigate this case. And if they weren't corrupt and they would have taken those reports of the women before seriously, this wouldn't have happened. Exactly. They should have been fired a long time ago. As of 2016, because I can't find anything closer, but as of 2016, there are reports of 5,600 Native Alaskan Indigenous women that are missing. You know, it's so much more than that, too. It's ridiculous. Oh, those are just the ones that people know, you know, like, and then I read somewhere else that it was like four out of five Indigenous women in Alaska will face sexual assault at some time. Four out of five. The thing is, pigs do not fare well in prison. Mm-mm. They do not. Gosh, in January 2020, there was 447 women missing that year. No bueno, but what a good story. Good job, Holly. Very sad for everyone who maybe isn't looking at our PowerPoint while hearing this story. Sonia is absolutely beautiful. She just has the prettiest smile, the cutest face. I mean, she looks, she's just adorable. She's so pretty. Yeah. yeah. And that's just so sad. All right, and now it is time for our segment of Overtime, which is where we are going to update you guys on crimes that we pick out ourselves. So I think Kylie's going to start us off. Give Kyle's a little something. So on November 20th in Omaha, Nebraska, 43-year-old Carrie Allen was reported missing, and police named her ex-boyfriend, Aldrich Scott, as a person of interest. By the time they did this, I have no idea where there's no real evidence as to like how they got to this point. But when they found out or they wanted to talk to Aldrich Scott, they realized he flew to Belize. So on December 6th, they arrested him in Belize for kidnapping. As of now, this is December 11th. He's about to have an extradition hearing to come back to the USA. But we still do not know where Carrie Allen is. There's no evidence of her anywhere. No, so I'm assuming she they have more did, info. They definitely have more info. It's mm-hmm. not looking like she was on the plane to Belize, but they are still searching. It's been about two weeks now, so we'll have to mm-hmm. keep an eye on that. Yeah, keep us updated. That's really sad. Very sad. Okay, I'll go next if you want me to. Go ahead. So I'm just going to update everybody on the USA basketball player, Brittany Griner. For those who haven't heard, we officially have done a prisoner swap for Brittany Grimer. So Brittany is a USA professional basketball player. She also plays overseas on the offseason. She does play on a league in Russia. And so earlier this year, Brittany was traveling to Russia to start her basketball season. And when she was detained in the, I think it was Krakow, airport. I'm not sure though, or Moscow. I'm not sure which one it was. So don't quote me on that, but she was detained at the airport in Russia for carrying weed. Um, even in the U S you can't travel with weed. doesn't matter how much it is. You know, if it's legal in some States, you can't do that. So to do it in Russia, 
not a smart decision. I think everybody would agree with that. That's a big no-no, even though I will say it was just weed pens and cartridges. It wasn't physical flour, but she was arrested in Russia earlier this year. She was convicted and charged with the crime of transporting illegal substances into the country, and she received a nine-year prison sentence in Russia. So now that we have all that information, these past few months, U.S. officials have been working on trying to get Brittany home and out of her sentence, because obviously she wouldn't have been sentenced to that if it had happened in the U.S. Well, this past week, and this is a very controversial subject, let me just say that too, what I am talking about, this is Kate Carter, is my personal opinion. You guys don't have to have the same one, um, but I'm just going to speak about it. So this past week, we traded a convicted known arms dealer from in a Russian convicted known arms dealer, and his name is Victor Bout. And so we traded Victor Bout back to Russia in order to get Brittany Griner. Let me just tell you about Victor Bout for a second. For those who don't know him, or for those that don't know the process, when you do a prisoner trade, usually one of the receiving ends is getting a lower deal. That's just how it usually happens. And especially when it comes to Russia, we have a lot of informants, uh, former Russia um, government employees, stuff like that, that are in prison in the U.S. We have a guy named Victor and Victor Bout is also nicknamed the Merchant of Death. So the Merchant of Death also, I believe, at some point had a movie or a TV show made about Victor and his life. This man is extremely dangerous. He was a former military officer and he was serving 25 years prison sentence in the U.S. And those were on charges of conspiracy to kill, exporting anti-aircraft missiles, providing material support to terrorist organizations and to the Russian government. So let's just say... Victor Bout, the merchant of death, not a good person. He had killed many before, was in prison in the U.S. We decided to trade him for Brittany. So I'm just going to kind of end it there. We now have Brittany Griner back in the U.S. We'll see what's going to happen next. I assume she's probably going to be let go of all charges because she is a famous professional athlete and will not be in trouble anymore. We have now released the merchant of death back to Russia in, in a prisoner exchange. Look up the U.S. prisoners that are currently being held in Russia. There's obviously lots of names that we don't know and lots of people that are probably there that we have no idea to. But in a prisoner exchange, quite a few other people that we could have tried to get home to the U.S. And I'm just going to leave it there and you can take it as you want. Anyway, so that is my story for today. I will keep you guys updated if I hear anything else on our next episode. So my story, I don't know if you guys remember this, but a couple episodes back, I did my overtime over a woman who had reported that her father who had passed away was a serial killer and that he had buried bodies around his property. And then the FBI yes. came in and like all that. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're ready. Who cried wolf because nothing was found. She claimed that her and her siblings had helped their father bury dozens of victims on their property, and the FBI found literally nothing. I think there's reports that she had some mental health problems, so that is sad, but also, I feel bad also for the older guy who had his, like, reputation just completely tarnished for, mm -hmm. like, a couple months. But anyway, so clearing that up, found nothing, so... Okay, so another I have one more. That was just a little update to my last one, so it didn't count. I also have a article that I found 
DNA taken from a truck's door handle in Washington leads to arrest 34 years later after Wisconsin mom's killing. So November 6, 1988, Betty Roth was walking in a blizzard when she was sexually assaulted and murdered. They found DNA evidence on a door handle 34 years later, or was DNA taken from that door handle and it didn't come back till 34? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, here, here's, here's the, here's the deal. The 60 year old resident never made it home. Her lifeless body was found the next morning near a railroad underpass just outside of the city limits. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled for years. The case went cold until recently. The sheriff's office announced that it had made an arrest. Jean Meyer, 66, of Washington, was arrested and charged with first-degree murder and sexual assault, um, use of a deadly weapon. So authorities were able to apprehend Myers with use of familial DNA. This is what I want to talk about. Familial DNA. Back in 1988, investigators took a swab from Rolf's body, the victim's body, and in 2001 ruled out any of her family members as suspects. And in 2019, thanks to advances in DNA technology, investigators used DNA evidence found on the swabs to search for possible relatives of Rolf's killer. So they were able to narrow it down with familial DNA to two people, which were Myers and his brother. And obviously it was Myers. So that was a People article that I was reading from, just to give credit. But I just, yeah, the familial DNA thing is so crazy to me. I just think it's just, I don't know. awesome. I mean, it's amazing to be able to do that. And it makes sense. I mean, it makes complete sense. But I love DNA evidence coming back to bite somebody. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just the best knowing or thinking that you got away with it for however many years and then... DNA mm-hmm. evidence continues to expand, you know? I think that the law is, like, really behind. Well, obviously, we know that the law lags behind, like, scientific shit. But I just want to know, like, I just feel like there's so many things that are not laws but will be soon. I don't know. It's weird. I mean, I guess, like, if you throw your DNA away in the trash, you know, you take a cup and you throw it away and you put it outside on your sidewalk. Obviously we know that you can just like take, anybody can just come and take it. It's not yours anymore. Wait, but say that one it, more time. Cause I'm going to go ahead and say a lot of people don't know that. Yeah, that is, so, that is something that most people I would say do not know. Yeah. Um, well the way the law is, if you, your trash or anything you discard or you get up from a restaurant, I mean that you leave your DNA and that's not yours anymore. You don't have, a right to say, hey, you need a warrant to get that. It's not you've 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 discarded it and it's not yours anymore. So People don't throw out your dirty business in the trash. Okay. Yeah. And if you have some no questionable bueno. relatives, don't do ancestry DNA. Just like I, I guess actually I go and that, do your ancestry. Yeah, I guess go and do it. You know what's funny? I was just watching an old episode of Law and Order SVU where they were talking about familial DNA. That's how they caught one of the perps. But they were even talking about, they're like, we don't know if this will be legal or for how long. Let's just use it. And so now it's weird. It's like almost 20 years later and we're still like, "Mm, still waiting. I don't know how I feel about it. It's weird. I mean, I guess it's great that it solves cases, but like from the legal aspect of it, I just don't know. It just doesn't seem fair to me. But well, fair is, I don't know. You know what I mean? I don't know how like the subpoena thing works with those DNA companies, but I know I did 23andMe and I got an email one time asking if I would voluntarily give my DNA for police investigations. So I know I was like, I was asked if something ever came up, if police Mm -hmm. were 
would be able to use it. Yeah. It's also kind of weird too. Like I also there there's been a few recent crimes solved with like um Alexas and stuff like recording people's things and I just think that's really crazy too. Uh, I don't know. I feel like the law is lagging behind a lot of the stuff that is going on, but anyways, that's is what I have today. All right. And that wraps up our overtime session, you guys. Thank you, Holly, for the wonderful episode today. And we will see you guys next week. This is over my dead pod. Kate Carter signing out. Bye. Bye. Bye.